This is Unfilter, episode 357 for April 7th, 2021. Absolutely. Well, by now we've all heard of the UK and South African variants, but now there's a new variant discovered in India that could be even more contagious. It's called the double mutant variant because it carries two mutations on the part of the virus that attaches to the cells, which means it could be easier for the virus to latch on and be more transmissible. 15 cases of this double mutant variant have been documented so far, first detected here in California. Hello, friend. Welcome into the Unfilter program. People's History Podcast happening right now. Can you smell it? Can you feel it? It's in the air. I'm hearing everybody talk about it. It is springtime in the United States. It is springtime, and people are out and about. Traffic is back. I don't know about you, but I got a ton of traffic now where I'm at and where, where the studio is located at. It is crazy here in the evenings. Nobody's staying home anymore. Still seeing a lot of masks, but nobody is staying home. And it seems like it's just kind of, in terms of just the general public being out and about and going to stores, it's kind of gotten back to the way things used to be. And that kind of checks out with some of the data we're seeing, too. In a new sign that Americans are ready to move on from the pandemic, more people traveled by air over the weekend than at any point since the crisis began. It comes as the U.S. set a new record Friday for vaccinations with more than 4 million in a single day. More than 106 million Americans have received at least one dose. That's 40 percent of the adult population. Health officials are concerned, though, that we're loosening restrictions too fast, potentially causing another spike. Errol Barnett is at Newark Liberty International Airport. Errol, what's the advice for travelers? Well, Anthony, the advice remains, if you can, refrain from air travel. But judging on the traffic we're seeing here at this terminal this morning and the millions of people who traveled this weekend, many people just cannot refrain. They have to get out. Many folks heading back now after seeing friends and family for the Easter weekend. And this comes just as the CDC issues new guidance for people who are vaccinated. You don't have to self-quarantine or test before you fly. But the major caveat here is it still advises against internet national travel and non-essential domestic trips man can you just picture how much a sigh of relief the airline industry must be feeling at this moment i'm not going to dignify that with an answer they must be like thank god that they're not listening to guidance (laughs) thank god because we were dying In San Jose, California, Kathy Anderson reunited with her daughter for the first time in a year. I love you too. Anderson is one of the millions of Americans who returned to the skies this weekend, shattering pandemic travel records. Increased demand prompted Delta Airlines to temporarily open up middle seats, and Americans' domestic bookings are at 90% of pre-pandemic levels. It just seems like all of a sudden it's a rush. Larry Pettis says he felt more comfortable flying because he'd been fully vaccinated. He's one of the 61 million Americans, roughly one-fifth of U.S. adults, who fall in that category. We know for vaccinated people, it's reasonably safe to do this. But among unvaccinated people, it is not yet. And I'm worried that it's going to lead to, unfortunately, more infections and more hospitalizations. 
this is becoming a common conversation right now is what can you do if you're vaccinated versus what can't you do? And how are we going to double check that you got vaccinated and that you're not just making it up? I think this is probably the one of the top three conversations around coronavirus right happening right now as I record this. And I'm worried that it's going to lead to, unfortunately, more infections and more hospitalizations. Dr. Ashish Jha says decreased testing, relaxation of public health measures and new variants are now contributing to the spread of COVID in several states. It really is a race right now between these variants that have become widespread and are spreading much more effectively and quickly and how many people we can protect through vaccines. The variant initially detected in the UK now accounts for about 26% of COVID cases in the US. And this weekend, officials announced a new variant initially identified in India was found in the Bay Area. It's actually just made up of a couple of other variants that we've seen elsewhere. The data so far suggests that it may be more contagious, like the UK variant is. Now, as scary as that sound, Joss says that the vaccines vaccines do appear effective against the variants. And that's always, always got to make that disclaimer. Everything's fine. Just get vaccinated. It's just it's extra double scary right now if you don't get vaccinated. But you heard it. They're calling it the double mutant variant, and it's loose in the Bay Area. So it seems that perhaps now Governor Newsom is following different science. This is interesting. So this new variant that comes in, it's super, super scary. It's it's so bad, we give it a ridiculous name. Double mutant COVID-19 variant. And yet the science telling the governor now's the time to reopen California. How does that work? You rewind a year ago, if there was some scary news story that there would be a double mutant version coming into the Bay Area, I, I don't think... Uh, reducing restrictions would be the conversation. <laughs> I don't think that's what would be happening. Double mutant COVID-19 variant. California plans to lift nearly all its COVID restrictions on June 15th, although masks would still be required. Carter Evans talked with the state's embattled governor, Gavin Newsom, who's facing a recall fight over his handling of the crisis. Oh. Oh, well, California was one of the first and hardest to lock down, and it seems that they have crushed a lot of small business. And, of course, he was caught at the French Laundry eating dinner inside, not wearing a mask while he was shutting down other restaurants. There was that whole scandal that kind of got everyone pissed off, too. Over here, this is where Looking back at your pandemic response, is there anything you would have done different? Like, you know, not go to the French Laundry. I think everybody can look back because we're all not experts. We're geniuses. This guy is such a jackass. This guy, you know, just the way he talks and the fact that this guy has presidential aspirations. Governor Gavin Newsom, who's facing a recall fight over his handling of the crisis. Looking back at your pandemic response, is there anything you would have done different? I think everybody can look back because we're all not experts. We're geniuses in hindsight. The one word of the last year is humility. All of us, I think, humbled. <laughs> yeah, you sound real humble right there. If you were humble, you'd say I was wrong. We did the lockdowns wrong. We were never going to be able to implement them in a way that, sh that was going to be effective. And so they were always going to be half measures that were unsuccessful. I realize that now in hindsight. And my lesson is, as a governor, we should never do it this way again. We should never make this mistake again. 
And if he said that, then I would think he's being humble. But he won't say that. With California Governor Gavin Newsom facing a looming recall and harsh criticism over a pandemic response that included some of the most restrictive rules in the country, his job could now depend on how quickly his state recovers. This economy is reopening. Schools are back in business. And I think California is uniquely positioned to come roaring back. (laughs) Yeah, he always says that. He always says that. They now have the third worst unemployment rate in the entire country. California, the beautiful land of Silicon Valley, beaches and sunshine and mountains, (laughs) has the third worst unemployment rate in the entire United States. It's pathetic. California has been slower than other states in the nation to reopen schools and reopen businesses. What do you say to parents and business owners who feel like you let them down. Well, 9,000 of our 11,000 schools have either reopened for in-person instruction or have set a date to reopen for in-person instruction. We- yep. And when they have reopened in person, it's only partial in-person schooling, right? There's still some at-home days. Like, my kid's school reopened for in-person school, except for next week. Next week, he, my son's home all week. Um, so I guess he's in person except for next week. And that's the same little little nuance that he's playing on but here. But they've been out of school for more than a year now at this point. Other states have been back for months. Yeah, so we put out a blueprint in December, $6.6 billion to address learning loss. And we're looking to extend the school year, extend the school day. We also have the third highest unemployment rate in the nation right now. Yeah, and it's continuing to drop significantly. And the reason our unemployment is stubbornly high is because the impact of the hospitality and leisure industry has been disproportionate. What will return and what is returning is the opportunity for these businesses to reopen. Still, more than 2 million Californians have signed a petition to force a recall. County officials have until April 29th to determine if enough of those signatures are valid to trigger a special election. It looks like you're going to face a recall election in a few months. I met some business owners who are supporting the recall effort against you because they feel like the decisions you made destroyed their livelihoods. I think we'll re- we all recall that Nancy Pelosi was able to get her hair done while other shops were closed. You'll remember the gal that re- that owned a restaurant; she had to be shut down. But right next to her, a Hollywood Craft Services contracting company came in and opened up a tent restaurant right next to her, and they were okay to run. Um, and they were clearly not social distancing and all of that kind of stuff that was just a slap in the face of the business owner right next to them. And that just went viral in California. Like we heard about it outside the state. But if you lived in California, it was a big narrative. Now, we put $2.5 billion in small business grants. California is the first state to do a stay-at-home order. He's, you know, and where does that money come from? And that's always part of the problem is when they talked about schooling, he talks about the money that he raised for disadvantaged learning. And then when they talk about unemployment, he talks about the money that he's spending. But people don't just hear that kind of thing and go, oh, great, he's spending money. There are some people that listen and go, well, where's that money coming from? Met some business owners who are supporting the recall effort against you because they feel like the decisions you made destroyed their livelihoods. Yeah, we put $2.5 billion in small business grants. California is the first state to do a stay-at-home order. Uh, We have among the lowest death rates of the major states in the country. We think we're better positioned than most other states to come roaring back, and we're providing record amount of relief and support for small businesses. Has the recall effort influenced your decisions and pandemic response absolutely not no of course i'm reopening even though there's a double mutant variant double mutant covid19 variant 
even though there's a double mutant COVID variant from outside the country in the Bay Area, I'm reopening not because of uh, this uh, this attempt to get me out of office. No, it's just recollection. It's just no big deal. This is uh, the reason I played this clip for you is because what you hear throughout this interview, wh- whether it be his COVID response, the economic situation, the unemployment. It's selection bias for the data he chooses to represent and focus on. Politicians always do this. And that same behavior and that same practice was used to guide the lockdowns and the quote-unquote safety measures. Now it turns out the the, the CDC released new guidance that basically states that we can shut up about all of the sanitation theater and that the surfaces turned out to be a pretty low transmit uh, uh, vector for COVID and that just simple basic bitch soap and water is all that is needed to clean a surface to disinfect it. And we don't need hand sanitizer. We can remove the hand sanitizer from the entryways. We don't need special alcohol swabs. Just basic bitch soap and water is all it takes to destroy this horrible double mutant virus. Double mutant COVID-19 variant. And that guidance essentially says that Surface areas, especially metal ones and outside, all of the stuff that we speculated about at one point, turns out, yeah, that was accurate. There, it's not a, a very common way to spread the virus. So schools that and, and playgrounds that were shut down, outdoor activities for children that were shut down, were probably not really needed to be shut down. So what science was driving that? What science drove the closure of the playgrounds to keep children inside? To prevent them from getting vitamin D, to prevent them from getting exercise, to help with their weight, to prevent just the depression that comes from being locked inside for a effing year. So what science justified that? Because now it seems like the science says, after the studies were done, that we didn't need to do that stuff. And that everybody, the billions of dollars that were spent on hand sanitizer might have been a bit of a waste. Isn't that remarkable? We ran off scared, selectively choosing different data and different voices to drive narratives and push for things that were absolutely unnecessary and did more harm. And maybe it's just really been a numbers game all along. That's really what it comes down to is selection bias. Let's turn now to the latest on the coronavirus. New numbers show almost half the new COVID-19 cases in the U.S. are coming from just Five states, New York, Michigan, Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, made up for 44% of new cases in the past week, according to Johns Hopkins University. So the data stream you pick, that, that drives the narrative about COVID. And over a year, over a year into this pandemic now, and the media is still blowing it on rapid testing. They're still fear-mongering, and they're still getting it wrong, and they're still holding PCR testing up as if it's the holy grail of PCR testing, not acknowledging that it's extremely nuanced there in how the testing is conducted. Over a year into this, and this comes out this week. All right, it is 6.45 right now. If you're not feeling well, it's nice to know right away if you've contracted COVID-19, right? But the rapid tests that give you results quickly are not always reliable. Why? Here's our why guy. Faster is not always better. If you want to fill your stomach quickly, you visit a fast food restaurant, but that's not where you want to take your date. For the- All right. Okay. Problem number one is comparing rapid COVID testing to fast food, I think is a dangerous 
mischaracterization of what rapid testing is to begin with. It almost implies it's unhealthy for you. This this is where they start with this Reliable. thing. Why? Here's our why guy. Yeah, and this is their why guy explaining it to us as well. Faster is not always better. If you want to fill your stomach quickly, you visit a fast food restaurant, but that's not where you want to take your date for the prom. When it comes to testing for COVID-19, a quick result may come at the expense of accuracy. So let's look at why the rapid tests are not as reliable. For travelers, countries all over the world are requiring a negative COVID test before you can enter. I also think reliable is the wrong word there. And I noticed that their on-screen graphics use the term accuracy, which I think is a more appropriate term that we're talking about here. Um, So he calls it reliable. I call it accuracy. A quick result may come at the expense of accuracy. So let's look at why the rapid tests are not as reliable. For travelers, countries all over the world are requiring a negative COVID test before you can enter. And now a few like Bermuda, Ireland, and Turkey are requiring the more reliable PCR tests. Now, the PCR test, I think it's not fair to call that more reliable. The PCR test is totally dependent on how many passes it takes, how many cycles. That's what defines the accuracy of the PCR test. And a lot of places for a long time had it dialed up past 30 passes, which is which makes it the other whatever past accurate is it, it just it make it's too far. It's too much amplification. And so how the PCR test is used is extremely important, just like the rapid testing. The usage of it is nuanced and important. The same goes to PCR testing. It's 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 literally the same. They both have caveats that people should understand, and some of them are significant. And depending on the type of testing you need, like, say, for flights, it matters. Or, say, going to school. All right, I'll stop and I'll, I'll let them keep going. Sorry. It's just I hate that they are shitting on rapid testing, and the way they're doing it is by holding up PCR testing. It's, it's an embarrassment. They're not as reliable. For travelers, countries all over the world are requiring a negative COVID test before you can enter. And now a few, like Bermuda, Ireland, and Turkey, are requiring the more reliable PCR tests. Results can take several days. The rapid or antigen test looks for proteins unique to the coronavirus. Results can come back as quickly as 15 minutes. The problem is that if you get a negative test, Uh, It may still be positive, but you just didn't detect. The rapid test reacts to a swab taken from a patient, then changes color, indicating a positive or negative result. If there is a large amount of virus present, the rapid test will likely find it. Dr. Jose Cordero of the University of Georgia's College of Public Health says a PCR test is more involved. You're getting the sample. There has to be a process of extracting the RNA, but there are several processes and that all of them take time. Think of it this way. If you're searching for apples in a tree that's flush with fruit, you can have success with a quick search. If the apples are hidden at the top of the tree, a rapid search might conclude there are no apples to find. That is such a stupid analogy. It's what why why this gets me upset is if you have a lot of the virus, if you have a high viral load, you are likely entering in or just leaving peak infectious stage. It really matters. It really, really matters. And the thing about PCR testing is it can be more sensitive and it can catch it when it's much earlier or say if it's been weeks since you've been sick. Absolutely. But PCR testing still requires getting mailed out somewhere. It takes a couple of days. 
rapid testing can be done in 15 minutes or so. And the other thing that isn't being discussed here is there's they talk about it as if there's only one type of rapid test. There are multiple types of rapid tests out in the marketplace right now that are getting tested right now in the marketplace. It's a go-to cliche example, but and there's a lot more than just this one, but it's one everybody knows. Joe Rogan's podcast guests all get a COVID rapid test before they sit down and do the podcast with Joe. Now, if a jackass podcaster in Austin is rapid testing people before they sit down in his red dungeon of doom, don't you think a lot of the other rich and famous people out there also have access to rapid testing? We also know the White House conducts rapid testing. So there's clearly different groups out there using this in a way that they feel confident. I think the White House probably should be the more go-to example. But the reality is that they talk about it as if there's just this one thing and it's dangerous. It's like fast food for testing. And the only way you can really be sure is to get a PCR test. When In reality, both can be used. The thing about rapid testing is it's going to catch somebody when they're entering in or just leaving peak infectious phase, which is truly what matters. It's truly what matters. And you can even catch them when they're asymptomatic. And because the tests are fast enough and because we could, in theory, produce them cheap enough, especially if we are spending money like Joe Biden, we could subsidize these sons of bitches. And for a dollar a day, you could test yourself with a rapid test. Now, if it tests negative today and it tests negative tomorrow, meanwhile, you've been sick the entire time, but it catches it the next day, it catches it on the third day, you're still going to find out that you have COVID before you've even heard back from the PCR test. That's why it matters, because you can take it every damn day, and you can catch it before the mail's even delivered your test to the PCR shop. That's just the reality of the situation. And you can check every single day. And every student could be checking before they go in. Every teacher could be checking before they go in. Every theater attendant, every projection booth operator. For God's sake, why don't we have this figured out yet? And instead of getting this dialed in, we have the media doing a chicken chip job with their why guy telling us that rapid testing is like fast food. The media has made this so so much worse. They've made this so much worse. So much misinformation, so much attacking Trump, making discussing certain things completely off limit. And now, now they're framing this this new situation with the vaccine card as if there's an imminent disaster that we all need to act. And they're jumping in like three stages ahead. This one's important for you to know, especially if you're on social media all the time. There is a warning about a growing trend for anyone recently fully vaccinated. The Department of Health and Human Services and the FBI are teaming up to investigate vaccine card fraud. Right now, there's no federal system to authenticate the CDC's vaccination cards, which, of course, makes it easy for scammers to make them. Experts say a digital verification or QR code may roll out eventually. But once you get your vaccine and your real card, experts say don't post it online. It just makes it easy for them. This one's it. <laughs> so, the, so I'm not, you know, like the, the whole message here seems to be bullshit, right? So here's the core of what they want you to know about this. Federal system to Right, let me back growing up a trend bit. for anyone recently fully vaccinated. The Department of Health and Human Services and the FBI are teaming up to investigate vaccine card fraud. Right now, there's no federal system to authenticate the CDC's vaccination cards, which, of course, makes it easy for scammers to make them. It's like they're almost like selling you on the idea that we need a federal database. 
but they don't actually tell you what the harm is. Like to you personally, obviously the harm is obvious. Like you could fake a vaccine card, be sick, get in somewhere that only allows people with vaccine cards. And then I guess spread a virus to a bunch of people that have the vaccine for it. So that's the risk. But what's the risk to the people that are watching this? Like the people at home that are sitting there jiving to this blonde gal's hip music. What is the risk to them if there are fake vaccine cards out there? Like the whole thing doesn't really make any sense. And then they end it with don't post your personal information to social media. <laughs> it just it's a, it was like that's an example of just the absolute shittiest coverage either. Why not talk about something like the comorbidities, like being too fat like myself? If I got covid right now, I would be at a higher risk because I'm too fat. And that's something we should have talked about, how people can be more healthy to help prevent this. But instead, we did these ridiculous lockdowns that led to more drinking, something like some damn near 40 percent of people report weight gain. That's ridiculous. There's been higher cases of alcoholism than we've seen in a very long time. Higher cases of suicide. They're off the charts right now. And people are less healthy than they were at the beginning of the pandemic, almost universally, with a few exceptions out there. And instead of doing things that made people healthier during a pandemic, we did things that made them more vulnerable. And I blame them. And now we have a really nasty situation on our hands. So we got to get cracking and tracking, guys. And we got to get rolling out on vax policy so that way we can tie reopening to vaccinations. Obviously, if we don't do this soon... We're going to miss out on this window, and it's getting so desperate now, we're just going to say this out loud on CNN. It's clear to them that the vaccine is the ticket back to pre-pandemic life, and the window to do that is really narrowing. I mean, you were mentioning, Chris, about how all these states are reopening. They're reopening at 100%, and we have a very narrow window to tie reopening policy to vaccination status, because otherwise, if everything is reopened, then what's the carrot going to be? How are we going to incentivize people to actually get the vaccine? So that's why I think the CDC and the Biden administration needs to come out a lot bolder and say, if you're vaccinated you can do all these things here are all these freedoms that you have because otherwise people are going to go out and enjoy these freedoms anyway <laughs> i don't think she knows how freedom works she doesn't want you going out there and enjoying these freedoms unless you've got unless you can get vaccinated first that's uh dr leanne want when i think when uh, the public health professor at GWU. And she's concerned that if we don't act fast, people are going to go out there and enjoy their freedoms without getting vaccinated. Vaccinated, You can do all these things. Here are all these freedoms that you have, because otherwise people are going to go out and enjoy these freedoms anyway. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable line of thinking. It is it is just taking this lockdown mentality to the next level at every step of the way. And at a certain point, I, I think just to be clear, I acknowledge there's a risk to COVID. Absolutely. But at a certain point, it's kind of like the risk of terrorism. How fundamentally do we want to scar the way our country operates to fight terrorism? I think the response to 9-11 did far more damage to the country than flying the planes into the Twin Towers ever did. And we took way more lives than were taken when those Twin Towers fell. And I think you can make a similar analogy to the way we are altering the functions of society to accommodate this virus. 
At a certain point, we are doing more damage to society than the virus is going to do to us. And if you're under under 60 years old and don't have some of these comorbidities, like being way too fat, or maybe something wrong with your lungs, you got something else going on, some sort of immunocompromise, there are real dangers out there, even to young people. I acknowledge that. But even with that in consideration, you have to look at the survival rate of this thing, especially now, especially now. And you have to ask, how far are we willing to take this? This just seems like at a certain point we have to stop and check ourselves. And it's just not happening. And now they're just saying it out loud that we need to tie vaccines to reopening. If you don't vax, you don't go out. No freedoms for you. That is, that's, that's way too far. That's a line that's way too far. And if they're saying that in public, you know they're saying it behind closed doors. And for a year now, we have focused on the wrong things. And we have focused on things that have made us sicker. Alabama's obesity rate is the seventh highest in the nation, and that means more people are susceptible to severe outcomes of COVID-19. Cassie Fambro spoke to health officials today who say if you're overweight, a vaccine should be a top priority. And I don't disagree with that. I think if you're overweight, you know, this is something that should be a concern because it's not just COVID, by the way. It's a lot of other things that uh, obesity is a comorbidity to. And it makes me think maybe I should get my ass out more often and do some more walking. You know, eat a little less jack-in-the-box. And meanwhile, I look over at our friends across the pond, and things aren't great, but they got a program I think might not be such a bad idea. It's a move designed to boost the unlocking of the economy and halt the virus in its tracks. Starting this Friday, everyone in England will be offered two free COVID tests a week, at home or at work, and in schools and colleges. People will be able to order test kits online or collect them from pharmacies and the tests will produce results in 30 minutes. The programme, which will cost billions, is aimed at people without symptoms because one in three people with Covid don't have any and may be spreading the virus unwittingly. But the tests won't be compulsory. The Prime Minister says, As we continue to make good progress on our vaccine programme, and with our roadmap to cautiously easing restrictions underway, regular rapid testing is even more important to make sure those efforts are not wasted. The really critical thing we don't know is what effect it has on transmission of coronavirus. So the Liverpool pilot of this happened at the same time as lockdown. So the number of cases did go down, but we didn't have any comparison to a no testing area. So we really don't know what contribution it makes or doesn't make. I don't know what to say to that. So let's just take a break. (laughs) Thank you to the patrons at patreon.com slash unfilter. This is an audience supported show. Sitting here documenting the people's history as we go along, chewing on these topics as they come up. And I can't believe we've been talking about COVID-19 for so long, but it's still... It's still very much a big part of our lives, and I'll continue to follow it. A couple other stories this week that I've been following kind of on a long-term basis that we're going to circle back to today. That's part of what I try to do on this show is I try to follow some of the stories that may fade away, but when we get an update, I try to slip them in. It's all part of the job, and I appreciate your support at patreon.com unfilter. Also, just sort of a swag alert, not here for this show specifically, but for the Unplugged podcast, we have a beer stein at luplug.beer. It's a limited time 400th episode 
Beerstein for the Unplugged program at luplug.beer. It's kind of fun. Let's restart the show. Hunter's been in the news this week. So I want to use this opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about Biden's past. I think what informs the man today and also just the beautiful rewrite of history that the media is doing for Hunter Biden for a profit. This is what I love about the corporate media and our uh, political elites is not only do they help each other out, but they even kind of help each other earn a buck in a way that is really just laid out bare in this little example with Hunter Biden. So let's get into this. All right. Welcome back to CBS This Morning. More now of our interview with President Biden's son, Hunter. In Hunter Biden's new memoir, he addresses his lifelong battle with addiction and his family's efforts to save him from himself. So he's got a new memoir out that talks about how great his dad is. And um, the beautiful, beautiful thing about this new memoir that is getting heavily promoted on CBS, they did it across multiple hours, um, multiple segments, and uh, the thing that's just—they don't—they don't really generally do that, but they do for this one because not only are they helping out Joe by resetting the narrative, and the entire goal here is to make Hunter seem more human, to humanize Hunter, to make you connect with the vulnerable side of him, to to take away this kind of image of an elite brat who was handed things like the sweet-ass paychecks from Burisma, don't think of him as somebody who freeloaded on his dad's fame and political reach. Instead, think of him as a victim. Think of him as a human who's had struggles with addiction and loss and really try to humanize. And at the same time they're doing that, which clearly benefits the president, clearly benefits the White House, clearly. But what takes this to the next level is that they are the ones that are selling the book. The company that owns CBS is the one involved with publishing and selling the book. So they are making money on this very book that resets the narrative on Hunter Biden for the White House. And while promoting it across multiple blocks on very expensive CBS This Morning television on the Tiffany Network, they are selling the very book that earns them a profit. The whole thing is connected, and this is how they really work. They help reset the narrative. They help out the White House. And you know this is not the kind of thing that goes unnoticed. And they fucking make a buck doing it, too. Beautiful Things comes out tomorrow. It's published by Gallery Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, which is a division of Viacom CBS. We spoke with Biden about the role he says anxiety and trauma played in pushing him to alcohol and crack. Most people who've gone through what I've gone through are either dead or in jail. Hunter Biden's battle with addiction began with a feeling of loneliness he says he's felt since he was a child. He unironically says most people that have gone through what I have gone through would be in jail, failing to realize that it's probably his name that's kept him out of jail. 
But now we frame him as the victim, not as the adult responsible for his own behavior, even though he's in, what, his 40s, but as the victim, as a young boy who's needed his daddy's protection. It's the feeling of never fitting in. It's that hole, and you don't know what it is exactly. Where do you think that feeling came from? I am uh, more convinced now that trauma is at the center of it. Which trauma? The loss of your mother? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. I don't know why this doesn't come across all of that gen- all of that genuine. Maybe in part it's because he's being led a little bit through these questions. In part it's because he doesn't seem like a genuine person. And in part it's because he seems like he's not all there. The uh, old acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree on this one, I suppose. Came from. I am uh, more convinced now that trauma is at the center of it. Which trauma? The loss of your mother? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. And I don't know why I had such a hard time ever admitting that. Hunter's mother, Nelia Biden, and his one-year-old sister, Naomi, were killed in a car crash in 1972. He and his older brother, Beau, just two and three at the time, were critically injured but survived. Their father was sworn in to his first term as a senator by their hospital bedside. I think there's a lot of research now that points to the idea that almost all addicts who suffer from addiction have a... a uh, serious trauma in their lives so you can't judge him because he's had trauma he's had trauma in his life so you can't judge him for it is kind of what the messaging is there but let's let's look into this a little bit um cbs went uh cbs went into it just for a a bit there about the car crash and that's something we haven't talked a lot about on this show before it it happened in 1972 and it was a hell of a thing it really is a tragedy um Biden's wife and daughter and two boys were driving in a, I think it was like a station wagon type vehicle and a semi truck, a tractor trailer type semi truck, uh, sideswiped the car. Now, Biden has gone on on multiple occasions and said that it was a drunk driving. It was a case of drunk driving. Um, you can find a lot of speeches of Biden talking about this. He talks about this a lot. But he never really mentions that the eyewitnesses said that it appeared that Neela Biden had pulled into the truck's driver right of way at an intersection with a two way stop. And the tractor trailer driver was unable to stop in time to avoid striking the car. Biden instead goes around for years now and said that it was a case of drunk driving, that his wife was killed by drunk driving. But eyewitnesses and I'll have I have links in the show notes. There's there's really no records to go to anymore. But eyewitnesses at the time said that the driver was not drunk. He was not charged with anything, not not fault. He wasn't ticketed and he wasn't he didn't get a DUI. And the eyewitnesses at the time thought that perhaps it may have been that she was in his way when he had the right of way, which would be absolutely tragic. But despite whatever the story is, Biden, I'm sure after suffering a lot of trauma, seems to have internalized in a way that has u- he has used for political narrative on multiple occasions. If you go look on YouTube, it's a dark rabbit hole. Uh, but what you'll find is a lot of Biden talking to firefighters and cops and unions when he's doing those types of speeches for years now. Uh, that's when he brings the story up. He often gets kind of emotional and cries about it. Um, but 
You don't hear him say as often that it was drunk driving, but you absolutely can find it. And it doesn't seem like that part of the story is true. I went back and found some archival footage that covered this on the news. Just a week before Christmas, 1972, the wife of newly elected Senator Joe Biden and their baby daughter were killed and their two sons badly injured when the Biden family car was broadsided by a truck at this intersection in Delaware. The truck driver, Curtis Dunn, was never charged in the crash, but his daughter, Pam Hamill, says he too suffered. He grieved over that. He was haunted and tormented by that for years. Dunn died in 1999, but since then, his family has endured widespread rumors and reports that he had been drinking just before the collision. At least twice, Biden himself has made public references to alcohol being involved in the crash. In 2007, Biden said the truck driver, quote, allegedly drank his lunch. And multiple news outlets, including CBS News, have reported that Dunn was drunk. Hamill disputes that, saying her dad had not been drinking. The truth is, it was a tragic accident. No alcohol was involved. The police reports have been lost. But Delaware Judge Jerome Hurley, who investigated the crash, supports Hamill. He tells CBS News there was no indication that the truck driver had been drinking. Last fall, a spokesman for Biden said Biden fully accepts the Dunn family's word that these rumors were false. Now, Pam Hamill simply wants the record to be cleared. He was a good, hardworking man and a wonderful father. And her father's reputation restored. Bob or CBS News, Newark, Delaware. Never going to happen. Could you imagine, too? I mean, just the tragedy of taking a mother's life and, and a young daughter's life and then for the rest of your life, you're smeared by somebody famous who eventually becomes the president. And I have no doubt that Biden's pain was real and deep and, and dark. Um, but the way that death has been used politically over the years is a little gross to me. And then, uh, and I have lots of links in the show notes for this too, the way he used his son's death, Bo's death, claiming that, that Bo told him he needs to run. And there's... Several different iterations of the story. Eventually, he backed it off and just said, stay active. Bo told me to stay active. Um, but it's gross. It's a twisting of the narratives. And now, Son Like Father is using that same twisted political tool to explain away his rotten party boy behavior. And they didn't just stop there, like not just reframing him as a, a soft, poor victim, but also... They really went easy on the whole Burisma payoffs thing from that nice uh, natural gas holdings company. The question of whether I would do it again, though, is no. You wouldn't I, do it again. I wouldn't. Because In his I, new I, memoir, Hunter Biden defends his decision to serve on the board of Ukrainian energy company Burisma, while his father oversaw U.S. policy in the region as vice president. He grew up in politics. Yeah. Did you not think you might be putting a big bullseye on yourself? I didn't fully comprehend. Now, this, I thought, maybe kind of indicated what I said when this whole Hunter Biden Burisma story came out. The elites at this level, they had a really good thing going for like 30 years, 35 years. And we're trying to get back to that again because it was great. You know, they family members would get paid. They would provide access to... Their political figure, you know, like, you know, a mom or a dad or an uncle or an aunt or grandpa, you know, whatever it was. It was this great deal. 
as payment, they would get access to Chinese companies and companies in countries that we were invading and then building out infrastructure in for them. We would give them access to that. I mean, it was a sweet deal that went real nice with nation building. It was a good gig for these elite guys. Man, they were just racking it up. And they didn't expect it to start getting noticed. Simply put, it just wasn't on their radar. I mean, you look at some of the shit that like uh, John Podesta and his brother used to be involved in. It's the same thing. They just didn't expect this stuff one day to start getting scrutiny because they kind of thought the American people were past that. They were busy with their televisions and their day jobs, and the political elite were just running amok. I mean, I'm sure for the first 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, you know, the original salts, they were careful. But then as the new blood came in and these wealthy kids that just were riding on the coattails of their parents, they, they never even thought that they could be exposed. It never crossed their mind. It was just the way things are done. As vice president... You grew up in politics. Did you not think you might be putting a big bullseye on yourself? I didn't fully comprehend the level to which this former administration and the people around it would go. Mm -hmm. The difference between the politics that you're talking about in terms of the last, uh, you know, 40 years is a very different game. And I don't ever want to, again... To, to to hand a weapon to people that would use it uh, in a illegitimate way that they used the weapon of me against my dad. He is uh, just as eloquent as his father. Come on, man. Now, I, they got to be careful here with Hunter. They need him to go out there. There's there's a lot of different ways you can deal with palace intrigue scandal. You can. You can lie about it and defer and hide it. You know, um, you can you can try to change the narrative. And sometimes, depending on the situation, if you have a good sympathetic character, you can go right at the problem. Good example of this is how the Clintons handled different little scandals during Bill's administration. They tried different techniques depending on how they felt, how much credibility they had there. You see us here. This is Hunter's going right at this problem to try to solve this for his dad. He's become a liability. He's become a problem for his dad. They want this thing tidied up by the election. So go out there, do a little tour. You think this guy got that book together in four months? You think you think he wrote a book in four months, or do you think somebody wrote that for him? You think that guy uh, poured his heart into that book? Yeah? <laughs> Is that what you think? No, of course not. He had a ghostwriter. Of course he did. He had a ghostwriter for him, write that up to help them frame this new narrative. They got CBS, the Tiffany Network on board because their parent company is going to make millions of dollars off selling this book. So CBS happily goes along to help create this new narrative to help sell some books because at the end of the day, that's how they're getting paid. They have absolute total bias in this and they go out of their way to make this real nice for him. And they did bring up the laptop. They brought up the laptop, but when Hunter said he had no idea what's going on, that's fine. We don't we don't need to ask that. We don't need to follow up. That's fine. Near the end of the 2020 campaign, another weapon emerged. This laptop is a disaster for that. How the hell did he ever let go of this sucker? You know? Allies of President Trump and supporters in the media. You love this one, right? Never mind the fact that there's an FBI investigation. That it's ongoing, but it's Trump and his allies, that classic game of 
this isn't worth actually talking about because it's just something that crazy Trump is talking about. Oh, and of course, the right wing media that support him. This is the classic framing that they used for the last four years to discredit anything that was worth talking about. Lab theory. <coughs> Hypothesis of lab leak. <coughs> Excuse me. I had um, some bullshit in my throat. And they just do it right here again like like it's the old days. They just roll it right out. And so just so you know, this is a Trump idea, but we're going to ask him anyway. Campaign, another weapon emerged. This laptop is a disaster for that. How the hell did he ever let go of this sucker? You know? Allies of President Trump and supporters in the media promoted incriminating evidence allegedly found on a laptop belonging to Biden. You remember when Hillary Clinton's email and John Podesta's email was leaked and it revealed that they teamed up with Debbie Wasserman Schultz to totally screw over Bernie Sanders and it just revealed all kinds of crap shenanigans about where the money was going and about the scams they were pulling. And then they just didn't talk about any of that stuff in the media, but instead talked about how they were hacked or leaked or how they were propaganda from Russia. They're doing the same thing again with the laptop. We don't talk about the pictures other than, oh, they use scandalous pictures in right-wing media. We don't talk about the emails that have been confirmed by other Burisma board executives and members who say, yeah, that was me on there asking for access. Or what about the fact that there was exchanges in there with an extremely rich Chinese individual who's now just gone? Since this story came out, he disappeared. Nobody knows where he's at. Not talking about that, are we? But... Those emails are in there. It's a lot of weird shits in there. It's if we had like some some group of people who were paid to like like look into stuff, they could probably tell us what's in those emails, but I guess we don't have any of those. You've seen the pictures, folks. I you know. It was delivered to the FBI by the owner of a Delaware computer store. You make just one reference to it in the book. Yeah. Is that laptop yours? Uh, it's it, you don't need the laptop. You got a book. You got the book. It's all in the book. Man, that's good. He must. That must have been coached. You don't need a laptop. It's all in the book. Yeah, yeah. Your your emails about selling access to your dad. That's in the book. Computer <laughs> store. You make just one reference to it in the book. Yeah. Is that laptop yours? Uh, it's. It, you don't need the laptop. You got a book. You got the book. It's all in the book. And I don't know. I, I truly... The, you don't know. The serious answer is that I truly do not know the answer to that. Did you leave a, a laptop with a repairman not in that Wilmington? I remember. Not, not that you that remember. remember. No. No. But whether or not um, somebody has my laptop, whether or not uh, uh, it was I, uh, my was hacked, whether or not there exists a laptop at all, I truly don't know. Are you missing a laptop? Not that I know of, but, you know, <laughs> you read the book and you'll realize that I wasn't keeping uh, tabs on possessions very well for about a four-year period of time. That's, you know, I was just, I was really, really stoned, guys. So I just can't remember. You know, $3,000 MacBooks, they just come and go with my dick's pics on there and uh, pictures of me smoking crack. You know, I just can't keep straight. just can't keep it straight. Uh, they asked him about the gun, that gun story too, but I'll save that for the overtime because I think we've done enough on this. I just wanted to kind of walk through that with you a little bit to show you how it all works. But I think some of this is they want to tidy this up because they want Biden to have a really solid legacy. I think that's all part of the plan. And now we're starting to talk about Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan that really goes way beyond bridges and roads. And you can find lots of right-wing media attacking it. Um, I think it's worth 
at least hearing from a different perspective. I I am skeptical about this plan, but I want to save that skepticism. I want, I, I'll first play this clip. We'll bring it from from Democracy Now. We'll bring us all up to date on kind of where they're at on it, and then I want to I want to bounce my ideas off you. This is Democracy Now, democracynow.org, the quarantine report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is calling for a minimum global corporate income tax to help pay for President Biden's proposed $2.25 trillion infrastructure and jobs plan. So in a really, really boring Zoom call, Janet Yellen is essentially reaching out to all of the G20 nations and imploring that they all agree to this minimum income tax. And uh, she's got the paperwork all written up for them. They've got like contracts ready to go that says everybody's agreeing to this. And the idea is that it kind of sets a competitive baseline, I guess, and that the U.S. needs to raise its taxes to do what they want. And I, I... Well, I tell you, I'm still trying to figure it all out, but that's what I've grokked so far. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is calling for a minimum global corporate income tax to help pay for President Biden's proposed $2.25 trillion infrastructure and jobs plan. Yellen spoke at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs Monday. Another consequence of an interconnected world has been a 30-year race to the bottom on corporate tax rates. President Biden's proposals announced last week call for bold domestic action, including to raise the U.S. minimum tax rate and renewed international engagement, recognizing that it's important to work with other countries to end the pressures of tax competition and corporate tax base erosion. We're working with G20 nations to agree to a global minimum corporate tax rate that can stop the race to the bottom. Treasury Secretary. So those of you listening live and those of you who listen after the fact, I'd love just your thoughts in the discord room would probably be the best spot if you could on what this would mean. A global minimum income tax. I have to be honest, a little bit outside my pay grade. I want to just document the fact that this is being discussed right now. And then what I'd like to do is begin the conversation of what the hell that would actually mean and what the impact of that would be, both bad and good. And then I'm going to do some reading, and then I just kind of as a community think we'll start forming our opinions. But I want to move forward in this clip. Now they're going to get Ellen's remarks come as part of a broader push by the Biden administration to promote the president's proposed infrastructure plan. During a speech Friday, Biden criticized corporations that fail to pay taxes, that pay no taxes at all. This is an economic through those who've helped build the country and have been ignored or neglected for much too long by our government. It's a once in a generation investment in our economic future, a chance to win the future, paid for by asking big corporations, many of which do not pay any taxes at all, just to begin to pay their fair share. To talk more about Biden's $2.2 trillion infrastructure proposal and his plans to fund it, we're joined by Derek Hamilton, professor of economics at the New School, where he's also founding director of the Institute on Race and Political Economy. So we're talking about a $2 trillion infrastructure plan when we've spent $7 trillion so far fighting COVID. It's a lot of money in the last few years. These are numbers that we've not normally used before. Like when Obama was in office and we were talking about a stimulus, like $700 billion was like a lot. (laughs) Okay. So when we're talking $2 trillion, 
I think it's worth considering what we're spending that money on. He served as economic advisor to Bernie Sanders' uh, 2020 presidential campaign. Yeah, this guy was the economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, so probably going to give you a bit of an idea where he's coming from. Uh, Professor Hamilton, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you assess this infrastructure plan, everything from highways and failing bridges to elder care and child care and racial justice issues that people don't usually associate with an infrastructure proposal? I mean, the good news is the conception of infrastructure has been expanded to include human infrastructure as well as addressing the environment. So, you know, beyond just traditional bridges and roads, which are in dire need of investment in America. So this is the big idea trying to be sold now to the American people. Is that infrastructure is more than bridges and roads. It's the environment. It's structural racial issues. It's child care. It's elder care. It's even it's even preparing for the water war. I don't I'm not making that up. Vice President Kamala Harris says that the next war that we fight will be fought over water, not oil. Joe Biden is very serious about being probably the most pro labor president we have ever had. about ours being the most pro-labor administration. And so in the American Jobs Plan, it's about building back up our infrastructure in a way that we leapfrog. So it's not just about repair, it's about building things. It's about fixing things and building things. We talk about water policy. That's a big deal here in Chicago and in Illinois. Water policy, to do better, well, we need to construct places where we capture water places where we store water. And here's the other thing, because I also, you know, I'm in a lot of meetings on foreign policy. You know, for years and generations, wars have been fought over oil. In a short matter of time, they will be fought over water. I don't, I, I'm, I'm still wrapping my head around the fact that the vice president of the United States is saying just out there, out loud, that we fight wars for oil. That seems noteworthy. Nobody's really talking about that. But she says we're not going to fight over oil anymore because we got that on lockdown now, especially now that we're getting back into Syria. But what we are going to have a problem with is water. And that's why we need to invest $2 trillion, paid over 14 years or something like that. Something, that doesn't seem right, but that's what the claim is. Um, to prepare us to have the jobs to be ready for the water war. Water. And here's the other thing, because I also, you know, I'm in a lot of meetings on foreign policy. You know, for years and generations, wars have been fought over oil. In a short matter of time, they will be fought over water. So when we think about building up our economy around our infrastructure on something like water policy, it's literally about jobs. It's about the fundamental source of life that Tammy Duckworth was talking about. It will sustain life. And it's about strengthening up our nation around a commodity that is a precious commodity. And so why am I talking about that here? Because also, you know the jobs that are necessary? I was in Oakland, the place of my birth yesterday, um, looking at a water treatment facility. 
And I was there hanging out with some of the building trades folks. They're doing an apprenticeship program there. The jobs to build up the water infrastructure that I was looking at yesterday, that's plumbers, that's pipe fitters, that's electricians. That's who's going to build back up our infrastructure. We're talking about human infrastructure. Well, Kamala, what's that about? Human infrastructure. If you've got children or elderly relatives, you can't go to work if you don't have somebody to help take care of them. So she's kind of done with the water war thing. But I think it's just fascinating that they're talking about water issues. I think it's fascinating that she's saying there's going to be wars. The vice president, who will likely soon be the president, is talking about water wars. And this is what my question is to you. Assuming, because this is something that I've, I've struggled with here, is assuming that we go into a world that is a lot more automated. You have maybe less truck drivers, which if you think about that, if you just think about uh, like a couple of industries, if we could just just p- picture the majority of the domestic shipping industry being automated or uh, a lot of the office worker calculation level people being automated or think about like shipping plants at Amazon, you know, Amazon's going to be the first to go with robots anywhere they can. All the jobs at all the Amazon warehouses that have people that have lost their jobs in the restaurant industry, have gone to work for Amazon and Walmart. Well, imagine if Amazon or Walmart starts automating large portions that humans do right now. And millions of people, when you combine all of it, would be out of jobs. That doesn't seem like that could be more than, what, a decade or two away at best? So is it worth investing now in new types of jobs? Water plant jobs, plumbing jobs like she's talking about, but also care provider jobs because we're going to have a lot of we have a lot of old people and we got a lot more coming. More old people than this country's ever had. Why not? Why not some jobs for that infrastructure? I'm going to be an old man one day. I wouldn't mind there being some infrastructure for that. Now, obviously, it matters in how we pay for it. But at some point, the investment's going to have to be made. And we're just going crazy with the money these days. The debt's. The debt price is low. We are getting debt for cheap, and we are going for it. It's gangbusters. Maybe the government has some sort of plan to uh, sell bonds as NFTs or something. I don't know. But that cat's out of the bag. I'm not saying I like it, but that cat's out of the bag. It's here. It's been here, and it's accelerated, and now it seems to be a fundamental tool to just keeping the economy running. So it's not going away. So with that in mind, is it, a, is it a crazy idea? Now, the problem I think that I have with it is some ridiculous amount, only like 5%, is going to bridges and roads. I like the idea of internet being in there, though. I have to say, I travel around this country, and there are parts that have really shit internet still. Although, funny enough, I've actually found 5G signal in the crazy craziest rural areas that I just never thought I'd see 5G. I don't know. Maybe commercial companies, when you combine you know, the cellular companies with something like Starlink, I mean, maybe commercial companies are going to have that solved. But maybe they won't. I sure would sign up for fiber, though, if I could. I'd drop Comcast Xfinity <laughs> in a hot minute, and I'd get some, some fiber from like my power company or something. So that's not necessarily a bad place to invest either. The environment is infrastructure. It's the fundamental aspect of infrastructure. Now, environment is a big term. 
So if it means investing in our national parks and cleaning our water and maybe reducing the amount of trash that goes out in the ocean, yeah, okay. If it's things like subsidizing renewable energy companies that are never going to be successful unless they get huge checks from the government, then I'm not such a big fan of that. So that's a nuanced issue when you get to environment. And the racial issues, I don't know what they have in mind. <laughs> I don't know. Is it is it better statues? Like I don't know what their intentions are, but it's a hell of a lot of money. So it better be going to somewhere good. And I think you I think this thing doesn't have to be two trillion dollars. I mean, if this was a functional government, you'd piece this thing out. You'd piece it out. You'd have the roads and bridges stuff and you'd you'd get that out. And that what would that be? That'd be a much more consumable, sellable package. And even the Republicans, they don't want to be out there against infrastructure. It's like one of the most popular bipartisan topics in the country. But because we're a dysfunctional government and a dysfunctional country, the Democrats are doing it in a way where they can ram it through without a single Republican vote, possibly. They have a strategy. They have several of them, and they are executing them while the Republicans mean remain impotent. They really have they're doing nothing. Mitch McConnell looks like a fool right now. They really are rudderless without Trump. Rudderless without Trump. It's pathetic. No wonder why some outsider came in and rolled all of those candidates. Remember, think back. Think back to the, uh, to the what was it, 2016? When did Trump first run? God. Forever ago. Just think back to the, all of the Republicans up there on the stage and the way he just wiped the floor with all of them. And the way he could work the crowd and get a laugh. You know, none of them can do that. They really, and Ted Cruz, is just, it's not going to be Ted Cruz. No matter how many times he goes down to the border and does a nighttime video from the river, it's not going to be Ted Cruz. They got to figure it out. It's definitely not Mitch McConnell. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's funny that they just don't seem to be. It. Biden isn't like some charismatic, powerful leader that is inspiring the people that has united like he claims he wanted to do. He's kind of low energy. He's kind of methodical. They kind of forecast what they're going to do, just like the Obama administration did. So you knew like a few a few days to a week that they were going to take a punch before they even took the punch. They telecast ahead of time what they're going to do. So and instead, the Republicans are wrapped up with Matt Gates and and ineffectual McConnell. It's it's amazing. It is amazing. And I don't know if their plan is just to sit back and see how all this shit goes and then pick and choose what they're going to give them a hard time about during the election. But I am holding them accountable right now. And right now it's a pretty pathetic, pretty pathetic show. I, I don't It's like they, it's like they need Trump, apparently. And that is that is the most pathetic thing about it. He wasn't even a real Republican. You know, <laughs> wow. Anyways, moving on. When I, I almost, I almost broke live for this at the end of last week, but I, I decided to hold off because I was out and about, and it didn't really go anywhere. And I, I just had a sense. It was a, it was this. You probably remember it because it just, it was kind of like a flash, and then it was gone. I, I think it was a, it's either Friday or Saturday. I can't recall now. But a man rammed his car into two Capitol police officers, killed one officer, and then hit the barricade. Two Capitol Police officers attacked in Washington and one of them killed. That news came down as we were on the phone with Congressman John Rutherford. Oh, my God. The officer died? The officer died. 
Now, investigators are figuring out why the driver of this blue car rammed into the officers, then got out with a knife. So let's fast forward to the coverage that then took place later that evening, which is pretty much where the story stopped. Almost no coverage once we got the name and identity of the shooter. Or I'm so used to saying shooter. (laughs) I guess of the knifer, the assailant, the attacker, the rammer. Tonight, investigators are working to piece together a profile of Noah Green, focusing on what that 25-year-old suspect left inside the blue Nissan he smashed into the barricade and on the clues he left online. Here's CBS's Katherine Harridge. Sources tell CBS News law enforcement is pouring through social media accounts linked to 25-year-old Noah Green, looking for a motive and tracking his movements prior to the attack. Based on social media posts, it appears Green hit a low point in mid-March, writing he has been tried with some of the biggest unimaginable tests in his life and was unemployed. Shortly after the attack, U.S. Capitol Police said the suspect was not on their radar. He turned out to be a bit of a religious radical and uh, not a white man with a gun. And so the story really just went nowhere. And the thing that the thing that stinks about this and you see it all over the web now is it it plays into this this sinking sensation and feeling an idea that's lurking in the back of our minds that the media seems to be driving at a specific narrative when it comes to violence in America. And when the event, be it this issue in D.C. or another, when that event doesn't fit into those narratives, and they'll even initially try, they'll try in, in some cases, but then when the evidence comes out and the name and pictures are released, they just drop it. And it doesn't necessarily relate to the color of their skin, although it seems to be a, a common factor. But you see it happen over and over again. Some stories, you'll get days and days of play with names of victims and just pictures and backstory and reading their Twitter posts. And then other stories, they just vanish. And one that I've been tracking for you for a while that we haven't seen a lot, even though it's been about, well, how many months has it been since Christmas? It's been a while now. But a couple of weeks ago, there was an update to that Nashville Christmas Day RV bomber. And while there's not much surprising here, I wanted to at least play it for you. We knew his name. We knew his address. We even knew where he made his bomb. But we did not know why Anthony Warner blew up an RV on 2nd Avenue on Christmas. Now we do. Paranoia and conspiracy theory beliefs. News Force Cameron Taylor is live tonight on 2nd Avenue. And Cameron, this took months to put together. It did, Marius, and here's why. The FBI had to comb through more than 3,000 pounds of evidence from the bombing, including from right here. They also investigated more than 2,500 tips and did more than 250 interviews. Also, they could try to answer that big question of why. So they spend all that money and all that time. They do all those interviews to come away with, well, it's because he was a conspiracy theorist? It's just... um just incomprehensible that somebody would do that. Melissa Finkley points to an apartment she used to call home on 2nd Avenue. 
All that's left is the devastation from the Christmas Day bombing. It's just senseless and heartbreaking. A report from the FBI lays out what they believe led to the bombing. It says the bombing was an intentional act by Anthony Warner to end his own life. Wow. That's our, that is, that is our FBI right there, ladies and gentlemen. That is some sharp investigation. It notes this was partly driven by stressors in his life, like paranoia, long-held beliefs adopted from several conspiracy theories, and Warner's relationships getting worse. You really got to watch out for people with conspiracy theories. That's really what we got to take away from this is conspiracy people are dangerous. You see, what starts as just some silly beliefs turns into a deep paranoia that can lead you to turn an RV into a bomb and then set up announcement speakers that run for like a half hour warning people to evacuate the area and then explode. That's what being a conspiracy theorist does to you. And to kind of double down on that point, we're going to we're going to tell a therapist over Skype about this guy and then have her psychoanalyze him even though he's dead and she just heard about all this information. We took this report to psychology experts. When someone starts making preparations for the end of their life, that is usually a a strong indication that we need some safety measures in place. Dr. Katie Spierko is a professor at Lipscomb University. She says paranoia and conspiracy theories go hand in hand. The more paranoid and anxious someone is, the less able they're going to be to critically analyze and evaluate information. What's brilliant about this now is if at some point it comes out like what conspiracy he thought might be like, it's been suggested that perhaps that AT&T data center was involved with some sort of election data processing or it was involved as some sort of communications hub for several data centers in the area. And he knew that taking it out would be disruptive. You know, now people, when they hear that kind of stuff, they can just dismiss it and go, oh, yeah, he was crazy. Yeah, right. He can believe in that must be one of the conspiracies he believed in and not fall prey to uh misinformation. The report also mentions where and when the bombing happened were chosen to quote, be impactful while still minimizing the likelihood of causing undue injury. An idea confusing other experts like MTSU professor William Langston. He studies conspiracy theories. The idea that he wanted to do the maximum amount of damage with the least amount of injuries is sort of baffling as to how that makes sense. For Finkley, it gives her pause knowing Warner is the only one who knows the real reason behind the bombing. Even if it he does, you know, you know, go away with all the answers, we're going to at least know a direction of, you know, what led him to, you know, his thought process and things like that. Now, the report says Warner's actions were not related to terrorism. The FBI also mentioned in that report that they did not find an ideological motive or personal grievance against any particular person or place. Marius. Cameron, thank you. That's why you haven't heard anything about it. I got that report from a downtown Nashville local news company. Right, you know, that's why that's that's why they're talking about it, because it's their neighborhood. <laughs> But otherwise, nobody's really talked about it because it doesn't fit in any particular narrative. And so the one that they've crammed it into is conspiracy theorists are dangerous, even though when there's a the psychology guy at the end who says, well, when you when you add all this up, that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> they, they leave that in there. But the guy's like, this doesn't, maybe it's because that narrative has been rammed into the story. Maybe that's why it doesn't make sense. I don't know. I'll keep watching for more. I think it's fascinating. In part because I'm an RVer, but also because there was some serious engineering that went into blowing that thing up like that with the systems that he did and the timer and all of that. Like, there's so much more to that story that if anybody ever released something, 
I'd love to see it. You can also share stories and clips with me, too. All of that we have rooms for in our Discord at unfiltered.show slash Discord. Yeah, I'm still there. For now, at least. I mean, it works, you know, it works pretty well. I'm waiting to hold out and see what happens if Microsoft buys them. You know, we'll see. In the meantime, though, let's see how far we can get on filter.show slash Discord. Just a reminder, if you'd like to uh, help out but not necessarily uh, become a patron, you could pick yourself up a Lup Stein, I guess we could call it. The Lup Stein. It's a beer stein. Luplug.beer. It's kind of a cool item. It's also unique. We're only going to do it for a little while. It's for the 400th episode and all that. It's pretty neat. I'm going to have more on that front, though, soon, so stay tuned. Now, if you want more show, there is overtime. You can always go to unfilter.tube. We'll have overtime coming up in just a little bit. More things to talk about, including stories that just didn't fit in this here episode. But that wraps up that wraps up the main episode, and I'll see you next week. Hello, everybody. Come down here in the basement. Okay, I lost that. Corn Pop was a bad dude.